0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would open it to us by your Spirit and that you would open us to your word in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I'm the director of Parish Life here at Third Church, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. It is a lot more full in here, this service, than in the early service on a holiday weekend, so I'm really glad to see all of you. We are going to continue our, serv- our sermon series on the resurrection this morning, and we're going to start by hearing our um, our reading from Ross Little. This is going to be from Galatians 3, starting in, in uh, verse 26, if you'd like to follow along. Our reading from Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I think Probably like most of us, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but I think the thing that I will never really figure out about social media is the bio line. I just never know what to put there, and so I just leave it blank. But I don't know if you've ever, some of you maybe identify with that, but if you've ever spent much time on social media, especially on Twitter, then you might have noticed that there's like a formula to follow for those of us who find it hard to know what to put into their social media bio. So the formula is you just pick the three most important things about you, you say them in one word in one line, and you if you're really cool, you might be able to separate them with like a little bar or a dot or maybe an emoji. This is a formula, okay? So we have an example for you of this formula from our beloved Pastor Cory. He's not here this morning, so we get to poke fun at him, but but he's done it here for us. He wants the world to know that he's our pastor, and he's really smart, and then he wakes up really early to work out in the morning. So good job, Cory, you did it. <laughs> You know, it is so common these days, not just on social media, but everywhere, to publicly name our identities, isn't it? You know, we put stickers on water bottles, on our cars, we put signs in our yard, and definitely our social media profiles, we do this. We announce to the world what tribe we belong to. And by doing so, we're also looking at other people, and we're trying to constantly figure out who's with us and who's against us? Who's on our team and who's the enemy? These last couple of years have really revealed the terrible conflict and division that we experience as human beings, hasn't it? We've, We've seen enormous conflict caused by the pandemic, we've seen racial unrest, the 2020 presidential election, war, we've seen racially motivated shootings, and even just our responses to the mass shooting this week, they're very divisive. That's not even to mention the conflict that we experience just like in our own home, right, with people in our lives. I bet there is not a single person in this room who hasn't had a relationship change over the last few years because of the division in our country. That's wild. That's not what we thought we were going to be heading into three years ago. Well, as we have seen time and time again in this series, when we come to this place of wondering where could our hope possibly be for a healthy human community, we see that our hope is in the resurrection. So I want to dive in and I want to look at this passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you've read this letter before, then you might remember that uh, sometime after Paul planted this church in Galatia, he learned that certain influences had infiltrated the church and they had introduced these new ideas. And Paul found these new ideas so threatening that he wrote this really fiery, passionate letter in response. So, what was the idea that was so threatening that Paul wrote this letter? Well, this church in Galatia, it was made up of converted Jews as well as converted Gentiles. And what happened was a group of people had come in and convinced the Galatians that the Gentile converts needed to take on the cultural and social identity of the Jewish people in order to really be Messiah people, in order to really belong to the Messiah. And namely, they they had convinced them that they needed to be circumcised. they were excluding these Gentile Christians because they were not Jewish. And to Paul, this was a total outrage. So I want to talk for a minute about identities. I wonder, will you raise your hand if you are or have been a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout? Yes, good. So my dad was a Boy Scout master, and his dad was also a Boy Scout master before him, so I feel very familiar with the ways of the Boy Scouts, not so much the Girl Scouts, actually, but um, so, you know, a Boy Scout uniform, it's all about identifying, right? You, first, just wearing the uniform itself identifies you as a member of this big tribe of Boy Scouts, Uh, Like I said, my dad was a Boy Scout master. It's very much a thing for our family. And so I cannot tell you how many times growing up that we would stop and talk to people in public who were wearing Boy Scout uniforms just because they were wearing Boy Scout uniforms. It's just, it's an identifying feature, right? But then also within that uniform, there are other identifying markers, aren't there? So you have your troop number on the sleeve, and then you might have um, a, a patrol badge or maybe a badge that says that you're like, patrol leader, and then you have the sash with all of these merit badges that are indications of the accomplishments that you've made. So these new voices in Galatia, it's almost as if they were arguing that to have the Boy Scout uniform was not enough to make you a Boy Scout. In order to really be a Boy Scout, you needed to be part of their troop. And to Paul, this isn't just rude. It's not just not nice. To Paul, this is an utter outrage. Why is that? It's because Jesus died and rose again to make us members of the family of God. To make us part of the Boy Scouts, so to say. And to say that that wasn't enough, that something else was needed is to deny Christ's resurrection power. So in this text, Paul says that because we have been reconciled to God, our most important identities have changed now. Now the most important thing about us is that we were children of God. So all of the other identities that we have, our national identity, like being American, our racial identities, like being black or white, our... Even our generational identities, like being a millennial or a boomer, our gender identities, our socioeconomic status, our marital status, our stance on gun control, or whatever else you could possibly put into your social media bio—all of that pales in comparison to our identity as a child of God. None of those things matter when it comes to being a part of God's family. It's like it's like the Boy Scout uniform again. Those other identities, like your troop number and your merit badges, they say something about who you are, something pretty significant. But the most important thing is that you're a Boy Scout. The most important thing is that you're wearing the Boy Scout uniform. So for Paul, all of those other identities are so outshined by our identity as a child of God, a member of this new and united Messiah people, that they pale in comparison. We are equal because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and united in the only way that really counts. So as children of God, our reconciliation to one another, it's a reality, even before it's an experience. Jesus' resurrection has accomplished reconciliation for us in our human relationships, Reconciliation is something that is achieved for us, even before it's received. So the reality that we are united in this new spiritual family, it's a fact. But how in the world can we believe that this is true when we experience so much division? Well, I wonder if you remember this diagram that Corey used a few weeks ago. You are here. We are living in the overlap of the eras, aren't we? In the now and the not yet. The time in which God's new world has dawned, but we're still experiencing the strife and discord and division and conflict of this present evil age. But a time is coming, friends, when the fact of our reconciliation and the experience of our reconciliation will be one. And the resurrection is the receipts. The resurrection is the proof of our hope that we are destined for this future in which racial and cultural and gender and political divisions will no longer be the source of tension or hate or violence, a future in which our beautiful diversity, the cultural riches and splendors and glories of every tongue and tribe and nation, they will be celebrated as the full reflection of the image of God. But we don't just have hope for this coming future, as we've talked about so far in this series. We also have hope from the future for our lives here and now. 2 Corinthians 5 says that as kingdom people, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. I think that's just such a beautiful phrase. An ambassador is someone who is belongs to one nation, and they're empowered by that nation to represent that nation in a different nation. And that's exactly what we're called to do, isn't it? We are empowered by the reconciling power of the gospel now, and we are sent to be agents of reconciliation in this world. Before I went to college, I had never tried Subway before. I know that's kind of weird, but I don't really like sandwiches, so it wasn't very appealing to me. But my sophomore year, across the quad from me in the basement of the dorm across the quad, there was a subway. And so every day, the smell of fresh baking, garlicky, buttery bread would just waft across the quad into my dorm room. And needless to say, I became a frequent visitor of subway. It was very enticing to me. <laughs> Leslie Newbegin calls the church a foretaste taste community. And it's the same image that he's using. He says that our community is meant to be a sign of the new world order for those who look in from the outside, so that before we even begin to talk about the kingdom, we are a foretaste of it. People can smell us from across, across the quad, and they're interested, right? So if our future hope is that the world's divisions are to be healed, then the church's call is to be a healing community through the power of the resurrection. So I want to talk, there, there are so many things that we could say about what this means for us here and now, and too many for me to fit into this sermon, but I do want to talk about just two ways that God may be calling us to be, to preview the reconciliation by being a healing community here and now. And the first is, through the ways that he heals our cultural divisions, and the second is through the ways that he heals our social divisions. So the first and most global way that the resurrection impacts us today is through the healing of our cultural and racial divisions. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, says that people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered around the throne of God and united as one kingdom. I just think this is such a beautiful image And Corey mentioned last week in his sermon on the resurrection of the body that this this shows that we will retain all of our cultural uniqueness for all of eternity. We will retain the distinctions in our bodies of our cultural differences, our ethnic differences. And this new creation then will be a place of incredibly diverse cultural expression. That's why Tim Keller says... Cultural diversity is crucial for missional credibility. It has never been more crucial than it is today. Look, I know that not all of you are going to buy that statement. <laughs> um, I, I imagine that many of you, when you hear me talking about diversity, you might, be, um, you might have a little inward eye roll, because to you, that is a term that identifies a left-wing agenda that's just come up in the last few decades. I hear that, okay? But just listen, this is the first major controversy that the young Christian church dealt with. It was the cause for the first Christian council, ecclesial council, and it is about the role of cultural and racial and political identities in the body of Christ. This is not anything new. And for Paul, it is essential that the Christian community reflect the reconciled, united, multi-ethnic spiritual family that Christ has made us, not because it is some progressive agenda, but because it bears witness to the hope of the gospel. But in the biblical picture, diversity is not the end goal. It's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It's diversity as a means to bring glory to the risen Christ. So I wonder if you've ever eaten at a fancy restaurant where after you order your food, they bring you um, a a free but very tiny appetizer. Anyone know what I'm talking about? So they call it an amuse-bouche, which is French for to amuse the mouth. And um, a lot of restaurants use it as a sort of way to show you what's coming, right? To show you what the chef can do. Sometimes it's really creative and um, show you what the chef can do. So if, if you taste this amuse-bouche and it's delicious, of course you're that much more excited for the meal that you've just ordered, right? But if you get your amuse-bouche and it tastes like rotten fish, what are you going to do? <laughs> you might cancel your order and go find dinner elsewhere, right? So Just like the Amuse Bouche friends, the church is called to live as an outpost community, as representatives, as signs, as a a real foretaste of the kingdom that is to come in the present evil age. And how are we doing at that? Well, if you've been in our Color of Compromise class, then you've seen and, and heard about the ways that the American church throughout its history has used race to divide people rather than unite them. And uh, data shows that today in America, although this number has been increasing over the last couple of decades, only 10% of American churches are considered multi-ethnic, which that means that no more than 80% of the congregation is of one ethnicity, which is actually kind of a low bar if you look at the general population of America, right? So, 10% of American churches are multi-ethnic. The church, friends, is just as divided as the rest of society, and it's gotten more divided over the last two years. If we are supposed to be an amuse-bouche, I don't know if I'm looking forward to the meal that's coming. So then, what do we do about it? Well, I don't have an easy answer to that question. (laughs) I wish I did the first this is this is a really tough question to be honest and and you know the first answer has to be that we get on our knees we beg god to make the power of the resurrection the reconciling power of the gospel alive in our community you know what we most need to get unity it's not tolerance it's not education it's not hard work although God might use some of those things, but what we most need is rescue. We need God to accomplish in us what we cannot change about ourselves. It has to come from above. But as we've said, the reality of our resurrection, it is a gift and it is also a task. And it's that task part that, if you're like me, it feels a little paralyzing because I don't know how I'm supposed to cultivate A diverse community when the people that I live with and work with and socialize with and shop with mostly look a lot like me. So my suggestion is that we start where we are. Start with what we have. So I want to offer two suggestions or opportunities that we might have to cultivate diverse community here at Third Church. The first is many of you know that we have a partnership with the Christian Arabic Church. But I wonder how many of you actually have a friendship with one of the Egyptian families from the Christian Arabic church. The student ministry, you might know, is really leading the way here, actually. The student ministry from Third Church and from Christian Arabic church merged this spring. And so all of our students are getting to know new people who they might not have otherwise known from the Christian Arabic church. And they might tell you that it's been hard, because getting to know new people is hard, right? But the community that they are building is such a beautiful witness to the gospel. That community just gives us a tiny taste of our resurrection hope. That one day all human divisions will cease and Christ will be all in all. And the second opportunity that I think we have as a church is, um, you know, I often hear when we talk about this People express that it's hard to be diverse when our surrounding community is not very diverse. And I get that. I think that that is somewhat valid. I will say, I think our community is diverse when we look in that direction. It's not very diverse when we, or sorry, it's more diverse when we look in that direction. Less diverse in that direction. And, you know, we are moving locations for a little while here in a little bit. Um, We're going to be at Regency Mall while we do some construction here at the church. And we are moving very close by, but into a location that actually has an incredible amount of diversity right around it. And I don't know what God is doing with that. But I would encourage us to just be open and prayerful about it and and see what we can receive from him during that time. So we have looked at our resurrection hope for healing our cultural and racial divisions. Now I want to turn our attention to what the resurrection means for healing our social and political divisions. So I was listening to a podcast the other day, and one of the speakers told this story. He said that he was with his family, and he, uh, they were on a trip, and they got into a taxi. And when they got in, they saw that the driver was wearing a hat that identified him as a member of a political party to which they don't ascribe. And they, the members of the family talked about it afterwards, and they said that all of them immediately felt a sense of, like, agitation and defensiveness and even fear. Like, they felt more afraid knowing that this person uh, was a part of a different political party than, than they were. And, you know, they, they felt defensive against him or, or felt at odds with him as a person, not just with his ideas. This is what they shared. But the interesting thing is that once they got settled in the car, they realized that the driver was playing Christian music. And so the speaker on this podcast, he said that when he realized that the man was a Christian, a fellow Christian, his heart didn't feel like an immediate sense of kinship or softening. His heart just like let out an inward groan, like, no, (laughs) because he knew that that meant that he couldn't just deal with this man unilaterally as a partisan. He had to deal with him, contend with him first as a brother in Christ. And that's a lot harder, isn't it? I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. I, I'm sharing this story because it was extremely convicting to me. I was convicted that I feel more comfortable finding out that a stranger in public shares lots of different identities, including perhaps my partisan identity, than I do to find out that they're a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And that's sad. That's really sad. I I think you might be surprised to find out that when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he was actually writing into a very similar historical context. This is one of the most interesting parts of the letter to the Galatians in my mind. So, you know, at this point in history, the Jews were scattered all across the known world, and they were living in multi-ethnic and multi-faith empires, and it was kind of hard to know who was a Jew and who wasn't. The question of who was a Jew, who was in and who was out, was actually a live debate. There is a bit of ambiguity about that. And so, in response to the ambiguity, some of these outward identity markers that had been part of the Jewish tradition forever took on an exaggerated importance. So for example, things like observing the food laws of the Torah and attending synagogue worship, those became extremely important markers of who was a Jew and who was not. And the most important marker, the most undeniable badge of membership into the Jewish family was male circumcision. And so, this pressure to know who was a Jew and who was not, it wasn't just uh, about genealogy or something like that. It was actually, it was also political. Because remember, the Jews lived under the Roman Empire, and over time, the Jewish leaders had worked out a somewhat of a tolerable symbiotic relationship with the empire. So, The Jewish leaders were given some exceptions to the rules of the empire. Like, for example, they were not forced to pray to the emperor. But the trade-off is that the Jewish leaders needed to keep the Jewish people from rebelling against the empire. So there was this delicate balance balance of power, right? And there was enormous pressure for the Jewish leaders, as well as for the Christian leaders, not to upset that balance of power, these, these sort of well-established party lines. And the easiest way to do that, the most sure way to make sure that things didn't get upset was for Gentile converts to adopt this outward identity marker of circumcision. I wonder if, if that context sounds familiar to you, <laughs> because we also live in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic nation in which Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell who's a Christian and who's not. Maybe it's becoming harder. And so these external identity markers that we adopt take on an exaggerated importance, right? Some people will say, to be a real Christian, you have to be conservative. Some people will say, to be a real Christian, you have to be progressive, right? Some people say that the church has to align with the right in order to risk losing our influence in society over things that really matter. Some people say you have to align with the left in order to risk losing our influence in society over things that really matter. These partisan identities have become so large, so important, so valued, that they have sunken our Christian identities. And it turns out, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. This is really similar to what was happening in the Galatian church. Friends, listen to what Paul is saying here. He is mad when he writes this letter to the Galatians. What's he so mad about? He's incensed that someone might suggest that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ would not be enough for someone to belong to the people of God. He's mad that the church leaders are more concerned with their political influence than with the Gospel witness. And he is mad that people are living as people of the old humanity when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So how do we change then? Again, I wish I had an easy answer for us. (laughs) And again, the first answer is that we have to get on our knees. How do we live into this new kingdom while we live in the midst of our old humanity? The first answer is that we have to pray. We're desperate for the reconciling power of the gospel in our lives. And I also want to offer up just one practice that uh, maybe you could consider taking up. So the next time that you consider commenting on a post on social media or replying all to an email or... Uh, mouthing off to a friend about a political stance with which you disagree, just take a minute. Maybe even you could, you could save your post as a draft so you don't lose it. Um, and before you proceed, find a way to have a conversation with someone who genuinely holds the opposite perspective. If it's a Christian brother or sister in Christ, even better and then through that conversation, make sure that you can articulate their position in a way that they agree fairly represents their position. This is just like the most basic level of decency that we can show one another, right? Like this is just the most basic starting point, step towards being, being a healing community. And yet it sounds so radical because it is so far from how we live our lives. There's a really beautiful quote by Rowan Williams, who's a former Archbishop of Canterbury, and it says, the first thing we ought to think of when in the presence of another Christian individual or Christian community is what is Christ giving me through this person or this group? Given that we may not always see eye to eye with other Christians we mix with, that can be hard work. And no doubt, it's at least equally hard for them looking at us. But nonetheless, Jesus has brought us together precisely so that we approach one another with that degree of expectancy. It doesn't mean that you will agree with everything the other Christian says or does, simply that you begin by asking, what is Jesus Christ giving me here and now? Wow. Can you imagine... If each of us approached just one conversation with that degree of, with that attitude of curiosity and expectancy. Friends, I am convinced that learning to live into this resurrection promise, this reconciled, united spiritual family in which our identity as children of God far outshines anything that might divide us, I'm convinced that this is one of, if not maybe the, discipleship challenge of our generation. And Paul wants us to remember that this is not, it's not just about having good relationships, right? It's not just that this is good for healthy relationships. It is that. But for Paul to practice your obedience to your new political leader, King Jesus, is to demonstrate your loyalty to the risen one, more and above anything else. That is the glory of the gospel. So friends, the resurrection of Jesus is not just hope for individuals. It's a collective hope for human community. Because Jesus Christ is risen. We know that all human divisions will cease and Christ will be all in all. And in the meantime, we church, we are called to be a foretaste of the resurrection community striving through the power of the Spirit to bear witness to that ultimate day of healing. The church isn't bound together through uniformity, through having the same beliefs or the same behavior. We are bound together because we belong to the same risen Lord who has conquered evil, he's healed our divisions, and he's guaranteed our future. We are like a band of natural enemies, who now, through the resurrection, are a supernatural community of hope. This is how the world will know that the war is over, that Jesus is risen, and that the only thing now to do is to be received by him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need you to change our hearts in the ways that we cannot. We need you to create a community here, even at Third Church, that reflects this reconciled hope that we have. And Father, we do look forward to that time when all human divisions will cease, that you will be all in all. And we pray, Lord, that you would come quickly and bring that time to fulfillment. In Jesus' name, amen.